Okay, Lee, what, what blanks did I miss? Stakes. Any other missing blanks? In the box. Restore. Restore. Okay. So we covered a lot. I got places we can go, but any thoughts or questions from what we covered? I would not at all be surprised if some of this was challenging, new, or you got questions of how to square what James says with other things. So let at it. Deb, this needs a microphone. Thank you. Deb, sorry. Yeah, when I was reading this before uh, you preached on it, I said the for verse 20, it says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Would the his, the second his, be the one that restores or the sinner? The sinner. That's, okay. a, that's a good question. There's, there's been some medieval scholars who disagreed. Um, so if you take, grammatically, it could go either way. It's fair enough that grammatically, you could validly, um, you could diagram the sentence validly where the his is, uh, is goes the other way. And if you were to go that line, you'd probably be connecting it with the watchman in Ezekiel, where God tells the watchman, if you go warn the wicked man and he doesn't listen to you, you have still saved your own soul. I will not require his life at your hands. And so there are some who, uh, who have taken that. But there's pretty good evidence from the fourth century in some of the scribal alterations. This is one of the interesting things you can find about the alterations to the text. Um, so like the fourth century, the... the uh, the Byzantine text family removes the his. And it seems pretty clear it's because the people copying it wanted to clarify any ambiguity. So what that does give us insight into is what people far, far, far closer to the original writing took it to mean. Um, It doesn't seem to make much sense that since the two parallel statements will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of his sins, there's only one person in this picture who's got sins. It's the person wandering. So because of the parallel, will save, will cover, um, it, it seems, yeah, most, all, nearly all commentators, except for a couple Roman Catholic ones, believe that it's the reference of both of the conditional clauses in the second one, will save, will, suf- will cover, refer to the one who has wandered. The one who must know is the one who did the restoring, and what the one who did the restoring did was he saved a soul from death, and he covered a multitude of sins. But it's not his soul that was saved from death, and it's not his sins that were covered. Um, No, it's not the Ezekiel stuff. Um, That's a good, fair question. Fair question. Anything else? I don't believe you don't have questions. This This was a challenging passage. Timothy? So covering a multitude of sins, um, I guess, how's that different than covering all of our sins, or is it different? Sure. I, I don't think it is. I, I think it is different. It's not, I don't think what he's saying is you could take it to just mean salvation, in which case the second clause is the flip way of saying the first clause. You save his soul from death. What does that mean? All his sins are forgiven. That's possibly what's going on, and the parallelism is identical. We're simply describing the same thing from different sides. But as I was talking about it with Pastor Daniel, I think it's more the idea of the ripple effect. Let's just say um, I'm straying in my, the use of my tongue. I'm beginning to use c- corrupt, coarse language. And in- instead of fighting it, I'm just giving into it. And you come alongside and you point me to, a, to Ephesians 4.20 and let no, um, no corrupt word come forth from your mouth. But, and you're like, look, man, what's going on? And, and I hear your rebuke. A couple things. Make no mistake. One, I start compromising and accepting the coarse language. I'm like, you know what? If that's a, it's totally different when you're fighting it. But when you're just like, you know what? It's okay for me to cuss. It's okay for me to use coarse language. That's fine. Make no mistake. I've made other compromises in my life. Um, because the, just back to Jesus, hold the tree and its fruit. 
Uh, it's not just a bad branch. And make no mistake that when I repent of that, I will be dealing with so many other things as well. You know, um, life isn't compartmentalized. And so if God gets a hold of you and you repent and you deal with the one big issue in your life, it will also cover so many other things. I think what James is saying is you may only be pulling the thread that you see of my use of my tongue. But if I listen to you and I return, there's, there's going to be a multitude of effects and things being dealt with that you aren't even aware of um, because things are always interconnected. We're not little compartmentalized beings. So it's more addressing uh, not God's ability to cover our sins or whatever. It's our dealing with our other ancillary well, I, sins I a little think, bit. Or, I mean, in him no. working through us. But yeah. Covering, <clears throat> coverings from Psalm 32, 1, is the final effect, the final state of affairs after, after a person has repented and confessed. So in David's instance, if, if Psalm 32 is also about the Bathsheba incident, Psalm 51, clear in the psalm title. David in Psalm 32 is describing a period of time where he did not confess his sin, where God's hand was heavy upon him, and then finally he does confess. So a lot of people think this is probably the best. We can't be certain, but let's just use the Bathsheba situation as an example. So when David is writing Psalm 32 and saying his sins are covered, Nathan's already come and rebuked him. He's already suffered the discipline of the child dying. He's already fallen on his face and pleaded for life for the child. He's already confessed his sin to God, and he's restored. And now on, all the, on the other side of that, he can say, how blessed is it that my sins are covered. So the, the, I think covered is the final state of affairs when we can move on. We don't have to talk about it anymore. It's been dealt with. Um, I highlight that because next week I'm going to deal with the question because there's some, some would not necessarily agree with that. Um, not from James, but from Peter. And so that's one of the things we'll deal with next week, trying to deal with some of the extra issues with this. But so it is what happens when God resolves it. But in the same way that you yourself are not saving a soul from death, what you're, you're the ax. You are bringing about a state of affairs where someone's soul is saved from death. You are also bringing about a state of affairs where multitude of sins are getting covered. So if you're just faithful with what you do see, they're going to be dealing with so many other additional things as well. Because, of course, when God gets a hold of our heart, he gets a hold of all of our heart. You know, um, that, that, does that make more sense? Okay. Okay. Anything else? Lucas. No, no, no. Microphone, Lucas. Hold on. For posterity. I have a scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Is that love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things? Love is patient, love is kind. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, my mother wants to say something. I saw that, mother. So. So. You can expound on. What can I expound on? Going back to the last um, discussion. Yes. On white lies. So if. You caught me in a white lie, which I, I know they don't exist. They're lies, but we yeah. call them that category. Yeah. You caught me on it, and I was convicted. Yeah. I would be, obviously, telling white lies to a lot of other people. Yes. And I would start working on correcting my, catching myself yes. before I did it, and not just when I talked to you, but at any other time I was tempted to compromise the truth. Yes. Well, and just think about, just think about the, the attendant sins. Because once you've made peace with a sin, make no mistake, you're going to have all sorts of other things. If you're dealing with some of the substance abuse issue, there's going to be deception, there's going to be lying, there's going to be management issues, stewardship issues. There's going to be all sorts of ripple effects that if they are going to repent of the, the alcohol or the pot or whatever, that are also going to show up in their life. The same thing with, with any other sin. Um, that they're going to, once, once we've made it our pet sin, we're not fighting it anymore, we will have all sorts of other things we've done to accommodate it, to try to fit it into our Christian life in some way. And so you don't realize what type of consequence and effect it's going to have over the whole course of their life 
what other compromises they've had to make. I mean, let me, I'll give you a simple example. If I'm harboring sin in my heart, guess what I'm not going to be doing? Reading my Bible the way I ought. Why? It's going to convict me. So I guarantee you, if I've cordoned off some little recreational area for sin in my life, my Bible reading and my prayer life is affected, right? <laughs> so if I deal with that, what's that also going to affect? My Bible reading and my prayer life. And on and on and on. Because we, we, sin tells you, you can be faithful in 27 areas. Just give me this one little area. And you can't. You'll tell yourself you can do that, but you can't. Jesus is insistent. Make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. No good tree bears bad fruit. No bad tree bears good fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. And so, ultimately, it's either going to spread like leaven through the loaf, or you're going to be ripping it up by the roots. But there's no just... You know, we've, we've, we've made a peace treaty and we've set, you know, a non-military zone around the edges and sin's going to stay in its zone and I'm going to stay in my zone. and It's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. Anything else? Anybody else? Let's go to Leviticus. Oh, Zach. In the last second, Zach. You saved us from going to Leviticus, Zach. When I heard Leviticus, I was like, I got to throw out something. He's like, oh, no, not Leviticus. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but it's kind of more of a comment, um, again, but, like, with um, we must guard ourselves against minimizing the danger. Um, I think that's a good thing for the person who is doing the, like, bringing the person back, as well as, like, a reminder to the person that they are possibly, or possibly a good reminder to the person that they're going after too because sometimes i know for me it's easy to be like well yeah i know that's like a sin and i should deal with that but you know this is going on in my life or xyz so i'll deal with that later like i know that's important but it's just not as important as these other things because they seem so much more important right now and or it's like well that's hard to deal with so i just kind of want to wait until i'm good and ready to deal with that Right. So it could be a good reminder for the person, too, of like, no, this is a lot bigger deal. Like, like your soul is at stake here. This isn't just, oh, yeah, your, you know, vacation is more important. And then after that or whatever is going on, it's like your soul is at stake. Well, and sin grows more powerful the longer we serve it. So Jesus says plainly, no one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one or hate the other. So every day I'm intentionally, willfully serving sin. Its mastery over me is growing. I mean, I'll tell this to people frequently. It will be harder to repent tomorrow than today. And it'll be harder still yet the day after that. God will take, it will take greater, potentially more painful, more stinging rebuke from the Lord to bring you to repentance next week than it will today. And so, so getting that the fact that there's a trajectory that sin is taking you on, it, it, it's, it's you're going away from right? You're, you're not just sort of parallel to, I just stepped off the path and I'm walking parallel to the, no, you're, you're, you're heading out. And every, every day you continue on that trajectory, you're getting further out into the woods and into the darkness. It, so yeah, right now at this moment, you may not be far off the path, but if you, you give yourself self to that, it will destroy you. I don't care what the sin is. It's not like there's certain sins that if you engage in them and embrace them, you'll be okay. And certain sins drag you to hell. Serving sin, whatever it is, once you finally come to peace with it and you're no longer resisting it and you're just like, yeah, I'm serving it, that person, if they don't come to their senses, perishes. That's, that's the, that's the dif- difficulty. And, and I know it's hard because it's probably hardest for parents of children, I think, when I've talked to people. And, and I know... I know we want to believe the best. And so you've got a kid and they made a profession and it seemed genuine, but now they're living a godless life. Um, and, I, and I don't enjoy being the guy to say I wouldn't be so sure. But good grief, while there's still time left to go after them, go after them. Um, and hanging your hat on, I'm just really confident they, they made a profession in Awana and it was sincere. If it was real, it'd be bearing fruit now. That, like, we don't know the end of the story. The good shepherd may go after him and pull him back. But as things stand, what you never see in the Bible is past evidences of faith being used to counter precedent evidences of unbelief. 
You never see that. Um, and so I, I think we should deal with things seriously. I think in the recent situation, because we saw how much harm was being done to other people, it connected like, oh, wow, this is awful. The challenge for us is to deal with someone who's lying on their taxes and won't deal with it. Somebody who's, who's given to anger. Somebody who's uh, any persistent willful. Again, I'm not talking about like there's the regular struggles we have, but somebody who's like, nope, that's just who I am. I lie. That's just who I am. I get mad. You know what I mean? And like where it's not as clearly obvious that a, a, a wake of wreckage is in their path is to also deal with it with the same zeal and alarm um, and alacrity that we did back in November, December. And praise God, it was, it was wonderful to watch the body act and, 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 and do what it should do. It, it, was, it, it, it was wonderful. But um, we, we need to keep doing that when necessary. Um, Z- Zeb, then Bridget. Th- Zeb, Deb, Deb? Oh, not you, Zeb. You're just okay. He was a proxy hand for Deb. You were proxy hands. I was just making a com or thinking in my head about uh, a comment. So this is a comment. It the ripple effect goes out to all the body too. Oh yeah. And um, and when I have felt before when I am in a congregation that I see stuff, and I'm like. Uh, not good if that's being excused. We'll go find the different church home. You know, right. that kind of stuff. Well, no, no, that, that, that also potentially is more of the ripple effect as well. How, how many people do you think got a check to make sure they're, they're taking their marriage seriously? How many, how many marriages got sanctified? How many? I think a lot. I think a lot. Um, and, and praise God for that too, you know? Uh, um, okay, Bridget. Well, let, let me give you guys a heads up. Um, the, this incident I'm referencing, I gave a heads up to and got permission from the person involved to, to use it as an illustration. I don't just grab illustrations and use them willy nilly. So, um, go Bridget. Um, so how does this differ from with a non-believer, um, confronting them on their sin? The primary, in one sense, none. I mean, what do you do with the gospel? You go out and you call people to reconcile to God. The difference here, I'd probably be, you've got a lot more common assumptions when you're dealing with someone named a brother. When I'm dealing with an unbeliever, I can say, hey, God said some stuff, you should read it. <laughs> when I'm dealing with someone named a brother, you have read it, you've agreed God said some stuff. I've got a lot more common foundation to deal with. But... Um, no, there's no difference. The repentance and faith that restores an erring brother or sister is the same repentance and faith that saves. Um, there, there is no difference. The difference would simply be you probably have more teaching in the case of an unbeliever. You've got to explain the gospel to them. You've got to lay that foundation. You can't assume all that stuff. When you're dealing with someone from among us who's named one of us, you actually have a whole lot more handholds to make use of. Um, there's otherwise no difference whatsoever. I mean, we're, we're let, me, let me show what I mean. So Psalm 32, right? Go to Psalm 32. Okay. And the way Psalm 32 unfolds is you get the main point in verses 1 and 2. David is going to tell us what a great thing it is to confess your sin and be forgiven. And then starting in verse 3, he's going to go back to before he confessed. So it's right out of the gate. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And now I'm going to go back. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer salah. So there's a period of time where God disciplined and chastised David um, in part through physical pain and languishing, I believe. Then, and this is where this David and Bathsheba is a good fit. It could be some other time. 
Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. We, we want to put it another way. We'll do this again next week. You got two choices. You can attempt to cover your iniquity, like Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness, or God can cover it. Those are your options. I acknowledge my sin, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then, verse 6, he then turns to instruct Therefore, because of my experience of when I tried to hide my sin and when I confessed it, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Which is to say, if you wait till the last second, you might be waiting too late. If you're waiting for the tidal wave to come upon you, you may may find out it's too late then. You are a hiding place to me and preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Which is to say... That's where I get the whole, like, it's only going to be harder tomorrow than the day after. Like, the animals who eventually do break get broken through bits, bridles, and whips. Don't be like that. So, so here's a simple question. Does everyone agree with me? David here is not describing his initial conversion and salvation. This is describing his ongoing Christian life. Any disagreement with me on that point? When David talks about forgiveness and confession, he's talking about a period of time as a believer, not his initial salvation. You can disagree with me if you want. I think, I think it's pretty clear. He's talking about a period of time in his walk with the Lord where he hardened his heart, he didn't confess his sin, he tried to hide it, God put his hand upon him, and finally David confessed. And he was like, why did I wait so long? I was an idiot. Don't you be an idiot like me. Don't be like a donkey. Confess your sin. Right? You with me? If I'm right on that, turn to Romans chapter 4. This is a long answer to your question, Bridget, but I, I think it's significant. Um, so, so if you want to use a category, I think Psalm 32, in its in the original instance, is talking about sanctifying repentance and confession. The repentance and confession that takes place in the life of a believer. Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? It, Paul is now arguing explicitly about the nature of the gospel and how one comes to initial salvation. And he's insisting it's by faith apart from works of the law. Okay? And then he uses as his first example, Abraham. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God was counted him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, example number two, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count iniquity. So it's interesting, Paul uses an example of confession and repentance and forgiveness in the life of a believer to illustrate the same repentance and faith that saves. Which means it's not like there's one repentance and faith that gets you saved and then there's a different repentance and faith you use in your Christian life. It means the confession and the repentance and faith that takes place at conversion is the exact same confession, repentance, and faith that goes on and on throughout the Christian life. That's the only way I can make sense of Paul quoting Psalm 32 here when I think Psalm 32 pretty clearly is not describing David's initial salvation but something that took place in his life of faith. But if they're one and the same, it's one, it's one and the same faith that saves and sanctifies and brings you to glory, then Paul can do that. So getting back to your question, what difference is there? None. The same faith, when you are struggling with sin and you need to turn to Christ and repent, it's the exact same turning to Christ and repentance that an unbeliever needs to do to become saved. It's not like there's 
faith A that saves and faith B that sanctifies. That makes sense? You with me? Yes? Yeah, no? I just think how you go about it will definitely be different, especially yes. because their sin is so rampant and mm-hmm. they, they justify it yeah. um, versus with a believer, you're hoping that yeah. they will acknowledge eventually that it's wrong. You know, it's yeah, just yeah. different. No, no. And, so, and that's where you got to have the discussion because sometimes there can really be disagreement. Like, I didn't know it was wrong to download and burn and rip CDs. I've had that discussion with plenty of people. They, you know, they got like 800. This is back when, you know, like before iTunes and stuff. Back when I was working at Camp Canoes, there'd just be kids with entire folders of like CDRs, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> pretty sure that's not legal. Oh, it's fine. You know, and that, it's a small thing. And I don't say those people are straying and walking up. I'm saying, but sometimes you actually have to discuss, is that okay? Or maybe somebody's like, look, I live in a state with legalized marijuana. What's the problem? And so you actually have to first discuss, like, do we agree that that's wrong or not? Um, but frequently, especially when you're dealing with believers in the same body, part of why we have you guys look at our statement of faith and, and say that you are in substantial agreement with it is to identify we're, we're on the same page on a lot of stuff here. And so, yeah, especially when you're dealing with believers in, in their own body, you can assume a lot more commonality of faith and belief and content to call people on, you know? Um, and uh, so it, it's much, in some sense, easier to go after a believer because you've got so much more in common than your unbelieving atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Muslim friend who we've got to lay a very big and different foundation. Um, and, and people's excuses can differ, you know? Uh, I remember one person about a decade ago in my living room. I know it's wrong, but I got to do it. Like, that's what they said. I know it's wrong, but I need to do this. Okay. Other people, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. There's all sorts of different ways. You got to deal with each answer that it is um, and and try to try to call on them, plead with them, work with them. But yeah, you got a lot more to work with, with a professing believer. You got a lot more to work with. Liz. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to bring up Proverbs 9, 7. Ooh. Um, Wait, let me get there. Okay. Hold on. And those of you listening at home. <laughs> no. Hold on. Hold on. Proverbs 9. Hold on. Nine, seven. Seven and eight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So I, I had this conversation with you before where you said the instance of this would be like arguing with someone on Facebook. Yeah. Be like, you know, and this long thing goes down. You're like, how, how is that helpful? It's foolish. Um, and I had, I had an example um, at work that I used because it just really bothered me. I have this uh, large verse hanging in my bathroom in my salon, Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory and gain in a righteous life. And I had a lady who I thought would appreciate it. She has white hair. It's not, it's not Lee. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one of my clients and she and I was like, "Hey, you know, did you see the side of my bathroom because I I love her hair and it's beautiful." And she she outwardly scoffed at it. And I was so offended by it that I was like, she's like, "Oh, no it doesn't. You just get it." And I was like, "Oh, that that really bothered me." So I actually talked to you about this and this kind of makes me wonder when is it worth it to actually pursue someone actively sinning versus like, no, just let it go? I don't think that would sure. be beneficial. First Corinthians 5. Let's go there. So, so dealing with unbelievers... While you turn to First Corinthians five, dealing with unbelievers, we need to address sin, but we also need to recognize, like the Proverbs, when somebody is scoffing at truth, Paul wipes the dust off his feet 
and leaves at a certain point. He says, since you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, Jesus talks about throwing pearls before swine. So that proverb would say, if, if, if you're talking to someone and they're not open to reason, all they're doing is scoffing and mocking, and you've made a fair attempt to, to plead with them, to appeal to them, to rebuke them, maybe once, maybe a second time, like, move on. <laughs> move on. Um, just like Jesus said and did, just like Ezekiel says and does, just like Paul does. When you're dealing with professing Christians, especially professing Christians in our body, that's totally different. So here we get verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So even as someone unbeliever's sin may bother you, it's not a particular basis to avoid them. Okay, um, this is where we gotta we gotta deal with the stuff in house, not out of house. Um, I am now writing to you, verse eleven, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Now it's interesting; the Greek is literally named a brother, which may actually imply the notion of membership. What I'm saying is called something they call themselves. They're called brother, which may reference being recognized a brother. So, so it could even be anyone that you call brother could be in view. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So our jurisdiction of dealing with sin specifically is in the church, not out. Now, obviously, in presenting the gospel, there is a sense in which we'll be addressing sin. But to, to, to go after and keep haranguing, no, no, no. We need, what, the person we need to be persistent with, the person we need to keep going to again and again and again, is the one named brother who's not turning from their sin. Um, so it's, it's not my job fundamentally. I don't have the jurisdiction to go after everyone out there in the world. That God, why? Because God's gonna, it's not that they're going to get away with it. God's going to judge them. And he doesn't need my help. I tell this to my kids all the time. I don't need parenting help here. Zadok, I got it. <laughs> no, no, because you know this with kids, right? Because when one of them is bad, the other one likes to say, you know you weren't supposed to do that. Do you think I can't handle this? You know, like, I got it. Well, we're doing the same thing with God when he's like, I will judge the unrighteous. Yeah, but you need my help, you know. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the, when dealing with unbelievers, Liz, if they're evidencing they're a scoffer, if they're trampling the truth you've got, I'd back it off, especially um, as, they're, as, they're, as they're coming to your business, like they're paying you for a haircut, and if you're, the gospel's offending them, then eventually stop talking and cut their hair. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, right? In the same way that, like, if you're working for an employer and he wants you to build a wall and you try to preach the gospel to him and he resists it, eventually shut up and start hammering some nails. You know, like, do what your person wants you to do. And that's not to say don't look for later openings where maybe a year later there's a different... But you're not being quarrelsome. You're not being argumentative. You're not harassing them in the way that I would be persistent with someone named a believer if they were um, in, in persistent and unrepentant sin. At that point, it's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. Lee wants to say something here. Hold on. I, I try to think of it as how God is jealous for his name mm. in the sense that if somebody calls themselves a Christian and acts a certain way, then yeah, you're the game on. <laughs> but if, if they're just, I like it, I if, like but it. if they're just, you know, just some, you know, some savage person that has no clue of what's going on. Well, they're, that's who they are. Yeah. And, and also boils down there. I don't know if it's in scripture, but it should be consider this, consider the source. When people say things, <laughs> what I'll what I'll say sometimes when someone tells me, "Can you believe what the Democrats are doing? Can you believe it?" Yes. Shocking! The Canaanites are acting like Canaanites, which isn't. But pause. I'm not trying to make light of real suffering. There can be real evil. I mean, abortion does real evil. 
there's real evil taking place in the Ukraine right now with real suffering. I don't want to make light of it, but we shouldn't be, we should be saddened by it. We shouldn't be shocked by it. I'm not shocked at what Vladimir Putin is doing. I'm not shocked at it. I am grieving the loss of life and, and the destruction, but it's not like I can't understand. Like we live in a sin cursed world where there, but the grace of God go. I, you know, it should not surprise me when unbelievers act like unbelievers. It can totally grieve me, but I shouldn't be like, why would you do that? The dead, deaf, blind, dumb slaves to the God of this world following the course of this world. What do you expect? Um, so, yeah, and that, and that really, I think, is when the church is at its ugliest is when we're who, who is I will get to you. Who is Jesus most incensed with? Who gets it the hardest from Jesus? Religious people who are hypocrites. So when we're tolerating sin in our midst, when we're minimizing, when it's not that big of a deal. And then the other thing the Pharisees did, they like to throw stones at those sinners out there. So I think the ugliest and upside down picture is a church that's winking and not dealing with its own sin and is always talking about the wicked, evil Canaanites out there. That is the most upside down and ugly thing we could be doing. I generally do not like preaching sermons about the evils out there. It's it's all too easy. To be like yeah yeah they're bad you know and like yes there's evil going on and we can make sense of it and my kids can ask me why is this happening well it's because they're sinners um, but primarily I'm much more interested about talking about the evil in here because judgment has to begin with the house of the Lord right Laura so going along Liz's train of thought with unbelievers when it's harder to distance yourself from them because they're family. How do you yeah, handle yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there, it, it's the fine line of making it clear where you stand. You want them to know where you stand on something. And then making it clear that, and I love you, and, and I'm willing to do what we need to do. Um, it's tough when family members are looking for you to validate them. I mean, certainly like with the whole sexual revolution it's clear you're dealing with people who it's not enough that they can do what they want to do you need to say it's good um and it's gonna be i can see more friction if a family member is constantly wanting me to validate what they're choosing to do but if they know that i disagree with whatever it is you know what i mean um and they aren't pressing me to say say it's good say it's good then i can i can hear i can have a meal with them i can i can fellowship with them i can tell them i love you um and not just quarrelsomely, constantly um, try to deal, call them to repentance. If someone's made it clear, I don't, I don't want to hear your gospel, at a certain point, stop. you're going to become quarrelsome at a certain point. So don't do that, as, as hard as it might be. And then just be praying, Lord, I'm looking for an opening, I'm looking for an opening, I'm looking for an opening, I'm looking for an opening. And, you know, I'm sure God will give you wisdom to see that when it comes. But, uh, yeah, it's it's... Jesus grew up in a home with brothers who didn't believe. John 7, even his brothers did not believe. And yet Jesus presumably was able to eat meals with them and go to sleep in the same room as them and, and interact with them, um, even though it wasn't until much later in their life, his life that James became a believer. Um, so Jesus was able to love Judas. I mean, think of that. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the disciples didn't hadn't picked up on any significantly different treatment of Judas by Jesus. Imagine that. I mean, Jesus knew from the beginning, we're told, who would betray him. And yet his compassion and kindness to Judas was so similar to his treatment of everyone else that when he said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all go, Judas, right? They said, is it me? No, right? No, right? It was not clear who Jesus' favorite was. Or at least it wasn't clear. Maybe it was his favorite because Peter, James, and John constantly get... But it wasn't clear who his least favorite was. Um, he, no, Jesus had a clear inner circle. I don't know whether there's favorites or not, but, but the three constantly got singled out. They went up on the mountain with him and others. So there was an inner circle, no doubt. But Judas was not constantly the butt of jokes and constantly being you know, teased or pointed out because it surprised them all when he betrayed him. That's remarkable how loving and kind Jesus was with Judas. Um, such that no one else detected a significant difference in how Jesus treated them. So, and that's Jesus knowing not just you're an unbeliever, you're an unbeliever who's going to betray me personally. And he loves them. 
Jeremy. I'm going to switch gears just a tiny bit. Switch and, gears. Uh, the use of the word brothers in here. Yeah. You made a point uh, with the first verse mm-hmm. about how this is instruction for believers. Yeah. However, by their lack of turning towards away from their sin yeah. towards Christ, they're proving themselves to be non-believers. Yes. So, <clears throat> is this an instance of us taking thinking about the writer and what does the writer know? The writer knows that this person claims to be a believer. The writer is not omniscient. The writer does not know what this person's ultimate fate is. Yeah. Uh, so is this just simply the, the writer believes this is a brother, so this is instruction for brothers, even if the person ends up not actually being a brother? Maybe. Let's go to Hebrews 3. Hold on. Hebrews 3. I, I would say, J- Jeremy, um, even to a, even to a born-again believer, statements like, if you do such and such, you will perish are true. Even to a born-again believer. The author of Hebrews is going to make... There's a tension. No, there's a real tension. This is why I think seeing the means that God uses is so crucial, why he will hold me fast. When we say you can't lose your salvation... It's not like a magic spell Jesus casts. He uses means. He uses people. He uses scary passages. He uses bold and persistent people on your doorstep. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses all sorts of means to get a hold of you and to hold you fast. So Hebrews 3, and, I, and I, this is where I was expecting we would end up going. It's the logical implication. How can we have assurance or how do we deal with assurance when it's like, bet if you walk away, you're going to perish, which I think there's numerous passages that say that. I want to show you the tension and with what time we have tried to deal with the tension, but I want to show you the tension first. It's the first full paragraph of Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Somehow the author of Hebrews is able to emphasize both truths. One, great confidence and assurance. Two, You're going to go to heaven if. So let's read it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I'm going to suggest that is a pretty confident greeting. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later as Christ is also faithful as Christ is faithful over all God's house as son. Now look at this last sentence, same paragraph. And we, the author includes himself in this conditional clause. The spirit inspired author of Hebrews at puts himself in the conditional clause. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And we need to be able to learn to speak both ways, holy brothers, share of a heavenly calling that we will go to heaven if we make it to the end. In one, now I get the, how you resolve that's challenging, and, and we could spend a long time talking about that, and I'm happy to take what little time I have. That both realities are present, I think, is undeniable. And so if you think saying conditional sentences destroys assurance, I'd point you to verse 1. And if you think assurance of salvation negates any conditional threats and any conditional conditions, I'd point you to verse 6. And in one paragraph, the author of Hebrews can speak and say, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And he can say, we are his house. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Which is what he's actually going to go on and elaborate. If you look in verse 12 through 14, and it's not about losing your salvation. He makes it really clear here in 14. Take care, brothers. Same type of warning. These types of warnings are all over the New Testament. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So it's a danger. He's falling away. An individual in the corporate assembly, because he's talking to brothers. All the brothers need to be on the guard against one person. This is a corporate watching. Falling away. 
What's the solution? How do you remedy? How do you guard against an individual brother from amidst the brothers falling away because they have an unbelieving heart? We exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. Now look at 14 and verse verb tenses are critical. You guys know what a verb tense is? Present, past, future, right? Okay. For we have come to share in Christ. Past tense. In the Greek, it's an even more emphatic past tense. It's the perfect tense, um, which is past completed action. So let's, let, let me swap this from a plural first person pronoun, we, to a singular, I. It'll become clearer. I have come to share in Christ. Jeremy Kidder has come to share in Christ if I hold my original confidence firm to the end. That's what he's saying. Work it backwards. If I don't hold my original confidence firm to the end, it's not I stop being a Christian. I never became one. That, that's what the grammar says here. We have come to share in Christ. This, the condi- it's conditional clause again. If then. Condition A is true if condition B is true. Condition A is we became Christians sometime in the past. That's condition A. It is true that we became Christians if we hold firm to the end. If we don't hold firm to the end, what's not true? We never became Christians. It's not you lost your salvation. You never had it. The grammar is critical, but it's also undeniable here. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so there's a lot of thinking and talking we can do about how to fit security and statements like this together. All I want to highlight now with the little time I have is that that's a pretty clear statement. Like what it's saying is clear. How to fit it all together, that can be tricksy. But I want to start with the, the clear reality. We can have confidence. We can address each other. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And we need to also be able to say, and we're going to heaven if we make it firm to the end, which is what that says. And yeah, there's plenty we can say about, and honestly, next week on the pick, what I'm doing next week is kind of picking up the scraps from this passage. Cause I, I, having just seen how much of a blessing it is when the body does this, how joyful and good it is. What are the things that get in the way? What are some other passages? How do we, how do, we do it rightly? And I want to stick with James this week, but we'll deal with, like, make sure you get the log out of your own eye and make sure you're not being a jerk. And, make, you know, I mean, and, and deal with the whole thing because we need to make sure we continue to have a healthy immune system where we go after the, the, the sicknesses and the diseases and, and, and try, to, try to really arm you to do this well and righteously. But, that, yes. I was just going to say, I wonder if um, when we say we say that there's this battle between assurance and yeah. and uh, holding fast to the end, are are what we is what we are actually saying a lot of what we do. I, I think back when we were kids and we say, you know, what what is that line I can't cross any further? Right, right, right. right. Um, yeah, uh, I remember having. You know, I don't know if it was Christian school or or youth group or whatever, but constantly the question of the unforgivable sin, because you want to know what, how much can I actually do and still come back? Right? (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to accidentally do the thing that I can't come back from, but, but what, what can I actually get away with? I wonder if that's what we're doing with assurance. You know, we, we want to experience the world and do the things that our heart wants to do even right. though we know that we shouldn't do them, and still be able to claim, well, I have assurance because, because you know, I can't be plucked from my father's hand. The, what happens, the danger is not, let me, let me be clear on one thing. It's, it's a good question. Whatever the unforgivable sin is, I got my opinion, it results in the inability to repent. Um, go a little later in Hebrews to chapter 12. Um, one of, the, one of the reasons why Psalm 51, A Broken Spirit and Contrite Heart, is one of my favorite psalms, songs, is because God never turns away the broken and contrite from him. So we learn in Hebrews 12 that there may come a point 
where you are stubborn and rebellious enough in your sin, where God gives you over to it, and there is no coming back from it. And we read about Esau, um, which is terrifying. Verse 12, Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a whole nother. We could have a whole nother message on that. There is a holiness without which you won't see the Lord. Strive for it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, which is referencing Deuteronomy 29, whole another message right there, spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The real danger is saying, I'll, I'll sin now and repent later, and then you can't repent. And Esau regretted. Repentance and regret are not the same thing. Esau knew he lost the birthright, and he was sad about that. What Esau couldn't do is repent. He couldn't grieve his sin. And so, so the danger is, and the presumption would be, I'm going to wander, and I'll repent later. And if you're God's sheep, you will. It may be repenting after he hits you with a rod pretty hard, because we just read about the discipline. But generally speaking, Jesus' sheep don't talk and think that way. So the more you talk about repenting later, the less likely it is you will. And the unforgivable sin results in this. I can't repent. Which, which is why when I talk to people struggling with it, I commit the unforgivable sin. Get on your face before the Lord. He will, he does, he will not despise that. He will not turn that away. If you've committed the unforgivable sin, you can't repent though you seek it with tears. It's not the case that there are repentant people of faith who God says no to. It's that some people are so hardened they can't repent and believe. Um, but yeah, if we're consumed with how close can I get to the edge, th- that's not the way sheep generally should be talking. <laughs> that's not good. You know, How much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven is not the type of question we sh- the New Testament thinks we should be asking. The New Testament assumes we ask the question, how much like Jesus can I be now? Anyway, thank you all. I'll stick around for a few more minutes to chat if you want. And next week, we'll be dealing with more of this and more of the broader implications of this. Thank you. Have a good day.